Hi everybody, welcome back. This is Julie Knudsen with the podcast Training the Pointing Labrador, episode number 144. Today's episode is going to be a little bit of a housekeeping. I am going to bring you quickly up to date with G and basically respond to several uh, listener inquiries, some things that people said, could you talk about this or that? So I'm going to address several of those things. I uh, was supposed to get G put out on birds this week, and I didn't get her or anybody else because of this looming snowstorm, and it actually hasn't hit us. It's early Saturday morning right now. It hasn't hit us yet, but it's supposed to be feet, although I don't know what, what it's going to turn out. But I'm not going to go put out birds that aren't getting shot for G and then have two feet of, of snow land, and then those birds just wouldn't make it. So you know, wimpy that I am, I'm not going to go put the birds in that kind of situation. So after this snowstorm passes first early next week, she will be on birds and I'll film it and talk about it. She's five months old. So the, the, the biggest new thing I'm doing, her obedience is good or retrieving is good. Um, she just naturally tends to hold on to stuff, which is just a gift when you're training a dog because some naturally don't. I've never ever let her play with the bumper. I don't let her parade and carry it around. It's never been a toy. It's when we get out the training bumper, this is serious business. And so because of that, I don't have to put up with any games with it. She, I mean, sometimes she comes right to me and a little over to the side, but basically like we did some marks this morning and she came in and sat down and just held on to it. Now, like, like I said, that's not going to just last and be the way she does it. But I don't have any bad habits developing. She doesn't think that we're going to play games with it or that she gets to, it's hers. She doesn't think that it's hers. And so that's important. Uh, it's, you know, I'm really going to use that. So given this attitude that she has and the way she's doing this, even though I made a joke of it in the beginning where I put a little chair up and she would run and jump up on the chair and up on my force fetch table, which is a kind of a raised thing where I can clip the dog so I'm not fighting with where they are. And first teach them to hold a bumper. Uh, and then, of course, once you get that, you got to get on the ground and have them do it on the ground and then have it do it while they're moving. And we're not anywhere there. And then you come back to the table when you start a little bit of, of uh, that literal force fetch. For me, it's an ear pinch. But what she's, she now she jumps up on the table. We don't need a chair anymore. She can get jump right up on the table. So it's a real positive place to be up there um, because it's always real pleasant and cordial. I mean, I, I like force fetch to be kind of an intimate uh, thing between the two of us. It's real personal. Um, and so we started that way. So I've had her with a, with a, a, one of the smaller bumpers, not little, not a puppy bumper, but one of the smaller bumpers. I've now I've just had her she gets up there and I put I tell her fetch and she puts it in her mouth it's, she's not responding to fetch it looks really good if I filmed it but she's just grabbing it because she loves it and I just now we're working on hold and because I've got sit real well with her when she, her mind gets on like oh I want to spit this out I just go in there and kind of pull up on her collar and her head and say sit redirect her thinking off of spitting out the bumper and back on sit and today she probably held it multiple times for 20, 25 seconds. So that's a real good start. She has a lot of her little tiny teeth in front, upper and lower. Her canines are not, now she's got a, a grown-up canine coming in and the baby canine's still there. So I'm not going to make this be uh, unpleasant. And if I needed to, I could use a softer bumper. Doesn't seem to bother her. 
I mean, she brings them all the way back every time she's retrieving. I haven't had one incident where she didn't retrieve. So we've just kind of started hold now. Not because you should do this as early as possible at all, but because I need to keep coming up with stuff for her to do. And because this seems to be a real easy thing, just, just holding on in a relaxed way to a bumper. And she loves sitting up there on the table with me and I'm stroking on her back or rubbing her chest. Oh, it's just great. So she doesn't know that she's really being trained. And uh, it's now, so now we're getting hold. Uh, so that's what I'm working on. We're going to do birds next week. Uh, so I'm just kind of slipping in this training stuff that later on is going to be really useful to already have done. And probably the biggest thing for all you new puppy people um, is I am doing everything not to develop any bad habits and just to develop the kind of behavior that ultimately I want without correction and trouble and punishment and all that stuff. I'm just, just taking advantage of her good nature and her willingness and not letting any bad habits uh, like come back, spit out the bummer, pick it up, spit it out when I reach for it, pick it up. The games that, you know, these guys play, not letting any of that stuff happen from the very beginning. And also, I think she's just kind of easy to do so far. So that's the G update. We'll have the Upland stuff, which I know people are interested in seeing next week because I'm not going to put those birds out in the middle of a blizzard or right before one comes. You know, I always think you got to be fair to the birds, fair to the ducks. Um, now... What I'm going to, this couple of things I'm going to talk about. I'm going to talk about uh, training under difficult, you know, not perfect circumstances. Because if you talk to pros or you look at YouTube videos or however you get your information, or you go train with a real good training group, you know, everything is there. There's a lot of people there. They know what they're doing. You have decent grounds. Um, you know, there's, you have equipment, whatever your version of equipment is. There's people, and so it's it's kind of ideal for those who are going to prepare for uh, some competitive stuff. Now, hunters, I don't think people are going to do nothing but hunting. They're not dying to get a group where everybody has wingers and cool camo stuff on. Um, it, so for them, tr they have usually trained by themselves. So it, now for the competitors, training by yourself is just terrible. It's like, I can't, I can't prepare this dog for competition. And I'm going to mostly disagree with that. You can. And so I want to talk about how to uh, train dogs, whether you're a competitor or just a hunter, where things are not ideal, where conditions are, are, are difficult. Many, many people I know are, are by themselves training their dogs because there's no one around them who does the same thing. Or often you get, you know, the person says, sure, I'll come out and help you. And it's a month before they actually get around to doing it. So it's not very useful. You know, when people work together, there does need to be a schedule and where you can count on everybody showing up there on Saturday or Sunday or Tuesday evening or whatever you got. So if you don't have that, how do you prepare to go run uh, hunt tests and stuff like that? So it's not ideal. It's not perfect. It would be perfect if there was about four of you, right? So you could always have a triple and um, the person running the dog or whatever. You'd have enough people and enough stuff. What if you don't? Now I'll say that hand-thrown stuff is just fine for little little dogs and, a, and a, you know, if you're teaching some kind of real specific little behavioral thing on the line, hand-thrown is fine. If you're going to compete hand thrown is not uh, going to work. Similarly, 
training in the same field or same couple of fields all the time also is usually there's it really comes back to haunt you because you never let them uh, experience a new place with new smells and new sounds and new things to it which virtually always competition is going to be so you have to think we're going to try and prepare you for every situation you're going to encounter in competition when you don't have help so don't train in the same place all the time because one that makes finding marks and running blinds way easier because they know where everything is so you take out that element of the unknown and the unexpected and where they have to bear down and think you remove that when you train in the same place all the time and then it, when they're somewhere new and they have no context for that you expect them to behave exactly as they did in your home field and they probably aren't going to do that there's like well wait this is different I, are we doing something different? What is this? And and now we've got people out there and someone's coughing and I can hear stuff and this is not like we have. And so they can just have their minds blown by being somewhere they've never been before with things that they've never seen before. So you definitely need, one, not to do hand thrones uh, exclusively and you need to train in different places. Even if on a weekend you've got to drive a couple hours somewhere to get to a place where you can do this, you're going to do that. You, you need, they need the experience of being somewhere they haven't been before with new everything and finding that the level of expectation in their performance does not change at all. So that's one of the important things. Now, the other thing is, what do you do? All right, so you can't do hand thrown and you don't have any help. And now there's there's a variety of things out there and I'm not up all on what the latest and the greatest is. People have wingers and that's a mechanical contrivance out there that you load up, you go out and load your birds and stuff in it. And they usually come with a, uh, a just a kind of a alleged quack sound and then a little pistol or something on there so that it shoots off a primer or a blank or something so you have a gun sound and there are also the little launcher deals these are generally bumpers they're more on the ground and you can fill it with more things and there could be more stuff than this so you need to go look at that and find out what's out there and it's of course not super inexpensive but neither are your entry fees so you got to make all of the entry fees count towards your end goal so in to do that Find one of these things that you can put out there to to launch the the bumper of the bird, and you gotta have birds. I mean, you can train a lot with bumpers. You can do that, but before you go run tests with birds of a variety of uh, conditions, the birds are in from fresh and nice to horrendous and terrible. They they still need to retrieve all of those. So you will have to do something where you have birds. Whether you find somebody, pay somebody, pay a kid you know, a, once a week or something to go throw some birds for you. Got to find that uh, as a part of the preparation. But if meantime, if you have a, you know, you can have a winger where you throw birds or you can have some of the launcher deals that throw uh, bumpers. But you have to have things that are out there in the field in front of you that get the dog's attention with the sound and then do the marks that you need to do. If you're going to have to you can you don't have to if you're going into the upper levels of stuff with triples you don't you don't have to run a bunch of triples to prepare for triples and that's a whole nother philosophy and I've gone over it a lot but you need to do hard singles really well and you need to be able to do hard singles 
that are close or tight or related to each other when you're at the upper levels. And you can accomplish that with the placement and, and the use of your, uh, you know, your mechanical things out there launching. So that you can do. So you can have the marks that you need to have. And, you know, there's a, they need to be set up well, just like if you were in a training group. We're not going to go into that here. I've already talked a lot about the marking stuff. But how do you set this up so that it duplicates somewhat what you're going to get in competition? Because again, I've heard so many people say, I need to train with a lot of people so my dogs are ready for test day. And I'll be honest, a lot of times I don't train with a lot of people. There are some times on the lower levels, my dogs don't see very many people at all. And it on a training group, I don't have big hunt test like training things very often. But it doesn't matter. And I can still go to a hunt test. And because of the way that I train them, they are so into what the expectation is, what the standard is, and what their behavior is. that And we train different places and do different things that they kind of are familiar with what they need to do. So there's a lot of cars parked behind us. It doesn't really impact them. That's very often just an excuse for poor behavior. What? This dog, he never does this in training. So, But how, what can you do? So... From experience, there's a number of things. I'm going to talk about poor man marks, but more importantly than that, that what, what you want to do is, so let's say you've got wingers, launchers, whatever you've got, and so you want to set up three marks that are out there. You're going to run them as singles. Oh, how smart. Run them as singles, one at a time. So you've got all, so now you've got to carry or drive your stuff out and set it down and set everything up and load it and turn it on and Put your primers or blanks in there. You've got to get all that stuff. So be real mindful about this. Your dog is not a part of this. Do not bring them out so they see where everything is. They can just stay back in the vehicle. So you're going to get all this set up. Now, you got two options to go. Obviously, if you're a field trial person, put white stuff everywhere. Not always. Matter of fact, dogs that I'm training that are going to run field trials, I almost you got to have white out there so they're used to it. But I also make them mark where a bird went, irrespective of what stuff looks like. Again, another topic. But you want to have what's going to be present at your events. You're going to have holding blinds, very possibly. You're going to have chairs. You're going to have people. You're going to have uh, birds out there, not just the one they're retrieving. You're going to have other stuff, obviously not laying out on the ground. So what you can do, there's a variety of ways you can do this. And you don't do it all on one day. But, for example, one, one time when you go out and you're going to do three single hard marks and you're going to run blinds behind one gunning station, up the middle, under the arc on another one. So you've got, all these, you've got this stuff set up. So you can go out and put three chairs out and put what looks like... Uh, a person sitting in the chair, you can put a jacket and put a hat. And, you know, you can put a giant stuffed animal out there with a hat on. You can, but the chairs and the, the bucket of birds, if you have enough to have that, at least have something. Not where the dog can go get them, but where they are out there and they can smell that stuff. You basically duplicate that. They have these things now It's that somebody makes that they're, it's kind of a silhouette deal. And you just stuff, stuff it in the ground and you put a hat and a jacket on. It looks like a really big guy standing out there. So you can have that also. 
so I think you get my drift. You can add, if you don't have all the trick stuff, put some chairs and a stuffed thing or a stick man or something there so that it looks like people and have the smell of a bucket or a bag of birds, but not one that uh, your inexperienced dog or any dog could just run over and grab. So you can put all of those three stations out, plant your blinds out there, preferably since you since you don't have gunners to help you, make sure your blinds are far enough past that they're not going to smell them or get hold of them on their way to their marks. And then run your singles and blind whatever you've got going and it looks like gunning stations out there. And so then you have to teach, you know, if your dog is new to this, you have to teach them. You don't go to all the gunning stations. Don't put them so close. You know, spread it out when you're first. You have to teach this to the dog first. You don't just do a real tough triple setup when they've never done this before because they're going to look out and, and go, what the, wow, it's like a party out there. So you could do it maybe with two to begin with, spread out. Do the one on the left and do the one on the right. So you teach them. Sometimes when I look out there and it's very busy. There's a lot of stuff out there. And all I do is run my singles or I run my blinds. And that's how you teach dogs to run, you know, on the backside of a mark, downwind of the flyer crates, under the arc. That's, well, one of the places you can work on that. You probably shouldn't teach it right there. Pattern blinds are better for that. But you just teach them this stuff. And then another time, now that was just people. Look like people in chairs on a gunning station. You know, then another time do it with one holding blind and one open chair and one stick man standing over there. You vary it, you know, and you vary. Sometimes you have a duck call, sometimes you don't have a duck call. You do different kind of stuff so that they learn when they look out and see this busy with a lot of stuff or what could possibly be a lot of stuff. You have all that out there that they don't get all upset. That's why you don't start this with the triple. You start it where it's very simple and straightforward, and they go, oh, just one at a time. Then we don't have any head switching. It's not moving around. They just do one. Even if they look over for waiting for someone else, you're going to send them on the one. So you can teach them to be calm, very calm about all uh, stuff going on, and you can teach them to be confident and to not look out there and go, oh, no, look at all this stuff. I know I'm going to get in trouble very easy to avoid all that bad stuff and you're teaching them about a busy view out there relatively speaking you know it could just be two sometimes you could put two stations and then just put a chair or something over to the left with somebody something in it and it, it does nothing it's not a part of anything you're doing and slowly they can learn just because there's a chair out there it might be really meaningful or it might be nothing in other words just pay attention to where i send you and to what you see if you see a mark go down so you can do this all by yourself. It takes a little time because you got to put it all out there and load everything up. And then maybe you see, oh, that's a little too close. I'm going to have to move this out a little bit and then plant your blinds. So you can do a lot of work that way. And if you get kind of creative and wise, keep it simple. And you can teach them, you know, where they just look out in the field and they don't even worry. And even if they don't see holding blinds, or chairs or whatever so don't always do the same thing always they look out and go all right i'm looking out i'll be seeing something here soon so you could have one gunning station with a holding blind and a guy you can see at one of the stick guys standing up behind it and you could have another one behind bushes that they don't see okay so then they learn you don't always see everything but so you can set this stuff up by yourself 
and teach your dog what's going to be happening and, and do it calmly. Now, if you're in an event, the AKC hunt test, for example, where you have a live flyer, the only way that you can prepare for a live flyer is with live flyers. So, and sometimes if you can't get your somewhere where you can't get your hands on ducks, get your hands on some pigeons and then you get somebody, you know, you're going to have to have, there we're going to have to have people and you're going to have to have somebody that can shoot that stuff. But if you're running something where there are live birds that are dropped, you have to prepare with live birds that are dropped. And if you're somebody isn't a real good shot, this is kind of awful, but anyway, and the, the duck or whatever is still out there moving around or running around, run the mark because that can happen. One, that happens in hunting. Everything is not perfect in hunting. You don't always kill them, and sometimes the ducks are diving or hiding in the cover or something, and you need a dog to ferret that out. And the same thing happens in uh, hunt tests. You might have one that got shot and dropped, but he kind of ran into the bushes over there. Be really nice to have your dog, because some judges will call it a no bird and some won't. Have your dog pick up a bird that's alive, kind of arguing with you, or one that's scooted away and, and gotten a little, obviously if they run over the hill and are gone, you can't have that. And that's not a fair test anyway. So those are some things that you can do by yourself, but you need to have the gun sound and you need to have the throw and you need to have it out there away from you. Now, you don't have to do that every single time. I mean, if you're going to compete, you need to run marks. Three times a week would be you know, nice. The pros do it almost every day. But if you could do that three times a week, that would be very helpful. And if one of those, you could get somebody out there, you know, for shooting flyers or for, you know, just having a person walk around. Because... If you do, if you can get somebody out there, this, we used our kids when they were little. It was great. We put them out there, and then one of them would just come running out of the holding blind and run somewhere, and our dogs learned to pay no attention to that. You know, it's like sometimes people running around. And so our kids kind of got in the middle of stuff, and we used that to teach the dogs to ignore that. Because every now and then in a test, you know, somebody's going to stand up and walk over to do something and come back, and, you know, people get, oh, they moved. That's not fair for my dog. Instead, go ahead and every now and then a person out there making a noise they shouldn't or standing up or moving uh, is a real thing. So, you know, if, let it happen in your training a little, little bit. One of the other things that you can do when you're training by yourself or even with a group, you can have a station. Say you have three stations out there and you're running three singles and, and the first one goes off and it's got a gun and then the second one, it does its thing, goes off, has a gun and a duck call and the third one, just have a duck call, no gun. Don't always make it where if there's not a gun, they don't think there's a mark. Because again, in competition, that happens. So that's that's some of the stuff you can do by yourself or on every now and then I get someone to help me to prepare you for running at the big event. And normally when dogs do oddly at a big event, it's one because they haven't seen people out there before or stuff out there before or looked out and seen a bunch of setups or something that was intimidating. And so the, you know, the person is, did not have the dog prepared. The other thing, which happens as much or more than that, is the person who trains by themselves and, I'm going to get this one, guys, has a kind of a low expectation, of, no expectation of their self. 
they're walking out, they've got some wingers out, they're doing some marks, and they're just relaxed and kind of sloppy if somebody was watching them. And the dog kind of tried to break once and they just called him back and didn't even really think about it. And, and it was, they were very sloppy and relaxed and not highly conscious of what they were communicating to the dog. In other words, their standard dropped. And then you go to an event and now you're trying to look all cool like everybody else and do everything the way you're supposed to. And it's different from how you train. Your dog goes, oh, oh this is different. And then they go out and they do different things because you did. Very often that's it. So you can't set up this stuff, but you, in my opinion, should be training, running these things like you were at the last series of the event that you is your dream event. And it's all on the line right now. Train like that. Really. Because if you train like that, then your dog gets used to that. And then when you go do that anywhere else, it's the same thing. And you get more of a consistent behavior out of the dog. That's a bigger factor than a lot of that stuff. Uh, on the birds, you don't, you need to use birds. You really do. Even if they're, even if they, you know, freeze one. Whenever you get some um, shot birds and stuff, freeze them. Reuse them, dry them if they're wet, freeze them again. Feel free. Now, this is me, and my clients will vouch for this. I don't throw birds away until they come up, you know, the, they walk up, the dead body comes up because of the green stuff on it. It says, I'm out of here, throw me away. I will use birds that are kind of skanky and kind of bad that don't barely break the, the surface of the water when you throw them in the water. Be, not because I'm cheap, but because if I've gotten birds like that in events, you know, it's, it's last Sunday, it's Sunday evening, it's the last series. That's a money bird, right? This is the money series. And and these birds have been used all weekend, and they barely, you can't hardly find them. I want my dog to know how to find those. So reuse your birds a lot if you have to until it's really not safe or, you know, got some something growing on it you don't want in the dog's mouth. Feel, do that. Get them used to whatever goes out there. Uh, you go get. Don't think about it and don't evaluate it. So you can train by yourself that way. One more on that is the poor man's mark. I think that's what the terminology is. This is a good thing to do for the people all by themselves. And that is to go ahead and go out in a place that you're training. Don't do this a lot. But put your dog sit on the up at the line. And walk out and throw one mark, one place. You can just do singles if you'd like, if your dog is that level. If you're, sometimes you can do a little bit more than that. You throw one somewhere, walk, take your time distinctly, get the dog's attention, make sure they're looking, throw another mark. Now, I know that people like to send from out there. I will, I, this is my opinion now, don't ever do that. Because your dog could be up at the line when the bird goes down, wriggling and scriggling and getting ahead three feet or back or making noises or or moving around. And you have absolutely no control over it. So for me, and I still do poor man mercs with some dogs for some reasons, I'll come all the way back to the line and make sure that everything is perfect and I will send them from there just like I'd never left their side. I wouldn't do that a lot because you're not duplicating anything you're going to see in hunting or competition, but it's a nice way to make sure your dark dog can mark retired, retired guns really well. So, and when you don't have anything else to do and your help, you don't have the help right there and you don't have time maybe to do your big setup, you can do versions of that occasionally. 
uh, and plan, and you can plant a blind prior to that, or, or, you know, when the dog's on his way back, toss someone somewhere where you want it when they can't see you, toss, you know, something that you're going to run a blind. So that's another option you can do by yourself. Don't do it a lot because it doesn't duplicate anything that you're going to be experiencing in competition or hunting, but it's a good practice and you kind of check your dog's skill level on a completely retired gun with nothing to mark off of. Not shrubbery, not a holding blind, not a chair, nothing. So that's a good thing that you can also do. Um, on days when you, the weather's really bad, let's say it's really, really hot or it's really like we got this this storm that's coming in. So what I, I'll just use this as an example this morning when I can't or when I was with the kennel and we're waiting for two feet of snow to drop on us, right? So I have dogs of every level. It was easy to do the indoor dogs. You can do obedience indoors. You can do the 360 circles. You can do backwards work. There's all kinds of obedience that you can do um, indoors. And then I was lucky. I can Then I can just be doing my hold work and my ear pinch work, do a bunch of that. My big guys, the guys that are already grandmasters and working at the master level and the pony stuff, um, what we did was teeny tiny little detail stuff. For example, um, standing still, I will do a, a 360 counterclockwise in 10 degree in increments. And the dog has to just back up slightly and sit back down. Back up slightly and sit back down. What is it? Six times. Maybe, and if they aren't doing really well, we'll do another one. And then we're going to do the here. I'm going to go clockwise. And they're going to move 10 degrees toward me. And 10 degrees toward me. I need to get out of their way and back up. Those of you that ever try that, don't stand in their way and say here. Because you're in their way. They have to get up and move in front of you. But if you back get back on their hip and give them a here toward you, you can move them 10 degrees. Just the legs. The legs. Not the whole body. We're just scooting. So my big guys just worked on a little bit of that. And then we can walk backwards, literally backwards, down the aisleway. So probably with those guys, I spent about 10 minutes, roughly. I never, I lose track of that because it gets really boring if you just stay at it. But just working on some real little finessey things. So getting in their heads and getting them to think is always, 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 always a good thing. There's no punishment. There's no correction. It is a teaching thing on a very small scale. And so when you go and make them think about stuff and respond and really get into the moment, there's a lot of upsides to that. So if it's too hot to go out or too cold or too blizzardy or whatever it is, then take 10 minutes in the basement or the garage or somewhere where it's not the extreme that you're avoiding. Shrink down and just work on maybe some very small details of some very small things. You know, when they do the front finish and come in, I hope not behind you, but on, at your side and sit down. Do they line up both your hips facing exactly the same direction? If they're not, work on that so they do. Not by letting them sit crooked and then fixing them, but by having them come in the first time and sitting down correctly the first time. That's what your leash is for. So that's a, there's just an infinite number of those kind of things you can do. So you can get a really valuable training session uh, when it just seems like it's impossible. So there's some ideas. When, I'm, when I finish this and go off to do something else, 10 more are going to come into my head. That always happens. But I think you get the idea where if you just think a little bit and get kind of creative, 
the guy training by himself, other than flyers, uh, and the, the motion of people and the noise of people, you can reproduce just about everything else. But you do have to get those, those flyers in there. Okay, the final one is a request I had by a client I've had for some time. Wanted some, he wanted some, some, some ideas and suggestions on training when you have a dog that's uh, more mature. And by more mature, I mean getting like me. You're not young anymore. <laughs> you're not a kid anymore. You know, you're still totally in the game. You can still play the game, but you don't have that, you know, youth and vibrancy and just, you know, nothing. You get stiff, they get stiff and they get tireder and stuff like that. So some uh, ideas about training with dogs like that. So I want to just kind of preempt, start this out in the beginning. One, I'm not a vet. Always listen to a vet that has experience with performance dogs. Athletic performance dogs, those, they, that, they trump everything, right? I don't pretend to be that, so understand that. But I am a person that's trained dogs on my entire life and who is also an athletic competitor myself and not a spring a chicken anymore. So we need to look at these animals first and foremost as athletes because that's what they are. Even if they spend a lot of time on the couch next to you watching you know, various things on TV, these guys are still athletes. And so when we go out and use them in the field, it's the soccer field, it's the basketball court, it's the tennis court, right? It, it's rowing across the channel. It is their athletic thing. And we need first to look at it that way. And as we would do with any people, you know, with young people and they're playing soccer, it's like, all right, kids, run out on the field. They just run out there and it, it's uh, they're just going. But the people, when you've got the middle-aged soccer group or the middle-aged basketball, you know, a competition, things have to be a little bit different for humans and it has to be a little bit different for dogs because the joints, uh, the tendons, the muscles, they do not respond as quickly. They are not as elastic. They probably are not necessarily quite as strong. They're certainly not as, uh, they can't rebound the way that they could before. So know that going in all the time, just as if this was a human being. So, and I'm going to talk about some alternative things to do, but that's the first thing to be aware of. And so Dogs need to, just like the people, they need to warm up. You need to stretch out stuff a little bit. You need to warm it up. Throwing happy bumpers is not that, all right? That's like doing, all right, let's do some 40-yard wind sprints to get you warmed up. Nobody, no sport in the world warms up that way. So what, you, what the best thing to do would be to get out and walk for... And not just walk around, sniff, and pee. But I mean, literally get out and, and just move. They need to move for maybe, um, I don't know, five minutes. They need to move so that the shoulders, the spine, the hips, the knees, the elbows, the their feet. You know, their feet are just a whole bunch of joints. And then there's the neck stuff. All right, so all of that stuff needs to get get the blood flowing everywhere. All the little supportive things need to get stretched out. That's important. Now, and I don't see that hardly ever, but if, but that's what we would do. We're not just going to sit down, get out of your car, sit down on the thing, get up and hit a pickup game as fast as you can of basketball or the soccer field or tennis or anything. So you have to 
get the dogs warmed up. So that's the first thing that would be good. And not the wind sprint stuff or the chasing another dog around. But just if this was a, a highly paid athlete, we would take them out and go for a five-minute walk where the movement was forward, not sideways jacking around, putting torque on joints that doesn't need it, and just getting them warmed up, getting the cardio everywhere, and also getting them mentally engaged. What people need to understand also on this retriever stuff, I'm going to talk about the, the running marks and retrieves. When we set up a set of marks, that's a bunch of wind sprints. Not only is it wind sprints, which is, you know, when you're running as fast as you can for a short distance, it also has these, these rollbacks, if you were horse people, a 180 degree turn once you get to that bird, right? Unless you're just sauntering out there and you grab that bird and now your body's turning around and you're putting stresses on shoulders and elbows and all this stuff as the dog is, they still think like the rest of us, that they're just, you know, 18 months old. A lot of them, they still think that. So they go out there and they grab that bird and plant that right foot down and that just slams a bunch of stuff into that right shoulder and then the spine, but all kinds of stuff is happening. One, that's why you want them warmed up. And second, you need to be aware of that. So be careful about... Um, the distance and stuff and the, what's out there on the, on the marks that you do. That's one, if you're, if they're going to be one of these, whoo, marks guys running hard, that makes them happy and happy makes them healthier. It's a positive thing, just like with people, but you want to have it set up where, you know, don't throw a bird on the rocks. So when they do that hard 180 turn that they're going to do, that they got hard stuff you know, obviously a softer surface is always better for these guys um, and surfaces that allow for them to just move a little bit, you know, without such hard crashing kind of things. Um, you know, don't run them straight down a hill where the bird's at the bottom of the hill so they can just, hey man, slam into that bottom. So be aware of this, the stresses that you're putting on shoulders, hips, and spines. That's, that's a big deal. Don't necessarily run them on the same stuff you're doing your one-year-old on. Just take a reading. Now, here's the problem. Dogs rarely tell you that they're in pain because they aren't even thinking about it. They, they don't, or that's not a, really a thing to the ones that love this stuff. So they're not going to run out there and go, oh, geez, I better slow it down. My, my foot, left foot is, you know, the, all the toes are kind of funny. They don't do that. They just run out there and whatever little damaged little tears from old tendons and muscles and stuff they just keep tearing them and so <laughs> you've got to be you got to be really careful take a reading when you go out and train your dog or go on a, a walk or a little run or something with them and then when they come back and then take a snooze and just like people and then watch them when they get up what are they like when they get up if it's, if they're struggling and you can tell they're stiff in the shoulders or the hips or wherever they're stiff, that tells you that whatever you did, that time was too much before. That's the criteria. Nobody can tell you what it is. That's going to be your criteria. So if they're pretty, having a difficult time, then the next time, cut it back 30%, 50%. Granted, the dog isn't going to like it, but if you start with a warm up before you do the work that you're going to do, the marks and blinds and stuff, and you end with a cool down. 
Now, I need, if, if this is wrong, some vet's going to have to tell me, but every athlete worth two cents in the world, they warm up, they do their thing, and then you do a cool down. And it is a very functional thing. So on these older guys, you know, I'm your year old. I don't, you wouldn't even recognize a cool down. But when you get the more mature guys that have issues they're dealing with, do that five minute walking warm up. And at the end, do that five minute walking cool down before you put them away. And a cool down is not being staked out in the sun and laying there. That's immobile. And you want to avoid the immobile after you have done the work. So run that set of marks, run the blind, whatever you feel is appropriate for them based on what prior, they've told you running prior setups. And then go take them for a five minute cool down and then go ahead and stake them out or put them back wherever you are because that what that does is that lets the heart rate go down that lets all of the the uh and i'm not gonna get into all that stuff but all of the chemicals that are in the muscles and the brain getting everybody excited and everything is just kind of pumping and going you need to let that ease itself out so that they don't have i don't know if they do the lactic acid thing like we do i don't honestly know but you got to let some of that get moved out a little bit when you're a person. Otherwise, man, stuff just locks up and seizes up on you and it's horrible. So that cool down, I know most people don't do that. And I do. And I would. And I think that's really important. That's going to help you. Now when they go home and they lay out on the couch while you're watching the baseball game. And when, you, when they get up and you just tell, are they still just super stiff? Then I still did too much in my marks and blinds. If they're a little better you know, then maybe that cool down is really helping. So that's going to be another part of it. Now, and then I got it. This is going on and on. I, If any of you guys listening to me have ever been in, in pretty intensely in sports, things happen. Things happen. It, and, you know, we're doing sports on two legs mostly, unless you're a swimmer, then you're on no legs. Um, but we're a little bit different. These guys have four-legged animals. So you have your drive section in the back and your support section in the front. And you have the spine, which is the connection in between. And everybody knows what a spine looks like. So what our dogs do when they're running in the upland field or when they're barreling out there after a mark and they, you know, they're trying to turn around before they even have any ability to turn around because they got wind of something, the torque and the compressive stresses that are putting, put on that body sideways from the way it's uh, intended. You know, it's intended for forward uniform motion. And when you are twisting and turning and banking hard and all that kind of stuff, on a young dog, again, they're very resilient. But as the years go by, stuff wears out. Some of those things get out of alignment. Um, very often in the hips, and in the shoulder blades and all up, in many dogs over the years, we have a, a, a chiropractic vet look at all of our performance dogs because stuff gets kind of out of whack. And if you get something a little bit out of whack and then, and then they continue to run the way they do, they get things, injuries occur, the pain goes up. You don't know what's wrong with this darn dog. It's in pain. It's not going to tell you, listen, dude, the shoulder here is killing me unless you can see it when they're getting up or laying down. Mostly they don't show you very much, but stuff can get way off. And when you let it stay that way, it gets worse and worse. And what happens, and I've said this before, if the front right shoulder 
This is the support part, right? You drive off the back end, you land on the front end. And when you're putting a lot more, the right shoulders out, there's some kind of misalignment there and the right shoulders getting real tender. Right? They don't land as hard on that. They don't land as hard. So they're going to be landing harder on the other shoulder. And when the front shoulder isn't doing its work, the front right shoulder, then a lot of times that back left hip has to change a part of your drive section. It has to change what it's doing. And so now we're going to start seeing damage done in the back side on the hip part or somewhere over there because it's carrying more stress than it's accustomed to because of the damage up front. And so now we have this cascading damage that occurs. It happens with people too. You know, if your knee's out of alignment, it can wind up as a neck injury or something in the other knee or the hip. And it's like that with dogs, but they just can't tell us. That's why you have to watch their movement and watch what they tell you and understand that this is a network. Drive in the back, support in the front. And when one wheel gets flat, it affects all of the, the driving of the whole thing. So you have to, that's real important. So that's why one, chiropractic uh, canine vets are fantastic if they're experienced and they know what they're doing. They are fantastic. They can tell you stuff. And we, I've seen many dogs when they got readjusted, you know, older, I mean older, like 10, 11 year old dogs get readjusted and just come springing up. You can tell whatever stress was in there was removed and they do much, much better. Now, just like with people, if they had developed muscles to support that misalignment, just realigning it correctly doesn't hold. It's going to go back to where those muscles are used to supporting things. So you have to have a good vet that can get you out of the mess and tell you, you know, how many, maybe it's going to take a couple more times and things you can do to build up, uh, to build up strength in a symmetrical way, which is opposite of how our dogs work. So this can be a battle, especially the older and older dogs get. Another thing is kind of a luxury, but it's when you're paying a lot of money for these guys and you've done a lot of things with them, just like with athletes, um, every, every cyclist in the world, those guys that race all the time, one of the things they get all the time are the massages because they use those muscles so hard. Cyclists are nuts. No offense, Steve. There's, they're nuts. And then so the massage to get, you know, the the chemicals that are byproducts of all the work they did out of there, that along with the realignment can make or break the big dogs, the older dogs. It is highly valuable. And if you don't have that kind of a vet, rally to get one because they are priceless. They are really, really good and it can really help on these dogs. So to sum up this deal, okay, be aware that symmetrical forward movement in one direction is how these guys are designed. So the more demanding and tough stuff you do on these older dogs, you have to rein it back. But the way that you tell how to rein it back is by watching what they do later. Add the warm up and the cool down before and after the work. And that should, one, make you be able to really see if the dog is okay or not, but two, really help them in injury prevention or just the wear and tear prevention. Injury is one thing. That's when something tears, you know, gives, something happens. Wear and tears where it's just a little bit, just this micro injuries, micro injuries, and they can just grow and grow and become chronic because they were never addressed. So be aware of warm up, cool down, Train on surfaces that do not increase 
the compressive stress and the torque and the, the hardness of what they're doing. You know, generally, unless you have a specific injury that's affected by it, water is fantastic for these guys. It is fantastic because there is no compressive stress and there is no, you can't turn a hard 180 in the water. And even if you do, the, your spine's the only thing that's going to, you know, hopefully that's in alignment. That's going to be a problem. All these factors go in together. Alignment is a big deal like it is with all athletes. You have to maintain the strength. Swimming is a great way to do it. Walking is a great way to do it. All of those are in one direction, straight. The body is built to move that way. So if you do more of that and less of the hard, torquey, crazy, wind sprinty things, you can build your dog's strength up. And these, uh, these vets, these chiropractic vets, you know, they have these exercises they have these dogs do. They have them stand on like a big ball. Uh, you know, just like but they have people stand on a big ball with all four legs. And so they are building up the muscles to support that uniform positioning in the shoulders and the hips and the back. Really interesting things. So those are some things to look at uh, for the older dogs. So I have definitely hit my time limit here, and I apologize for that, but had to get all this information out for everybody. Um, if I don't get buried in the snow, I'll be back next week with the G update and maybe some video and some stuff to talk about young puppies and birds because I know everybody's interested in that. But I hope this helped people because more of us have older dogs than the little guys. And uh, just let's be thoughtful like it was you and you were still doing athletic things and we had to take just a little bit extra care of you. So I hope that's good. Uh, I hope everybody survives the crazy weather we're having. And G and I, we will be back soon.